0: Is crotch's comfort hurting your game? Fear no more. The kings of crotch comfort manscaped have spent two years designing the most comfortable boxer briefs out there. Sleek, soft, comfortable, and flexible, the brand new Boxers 2.0 for a manscaped take your balls to the royal ball throne. The global leaders in below-the-waist grooming have the Lawnmower 4.0 for the trimming, so you can wear the Boxers 2.0 for the chillin'. They have trademarked the jewel pouch so you you know it's serious and I think it's time you invest in your family jewels. So let your bulge breathe and get 20% off and free shipping using code DOINK at manscaped.com. Let's say you're on a date and your partner catches that manscaped on the waistband of your underwear. It's almost guaranteed to raise some eyebrows and act like a billboard on the highway to pleasure town. This is thanks to their lawnmower 4.0, the best electric trimmer for the below the waist grooming. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accents, thanks to their advanced, advanced skin safe technology. The lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof and also 4000K LED spotlight, so you have a more precise shape. Again, get 20% off and free shipping Go doink at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping using code doink at manscaped.com. .com. And our last ep- our last uh, sponsor for today's episode is BetterHelp. We want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. Not everyone is someone they can lean on and talk to, and that's where BetterHelp comes in. With BetterHelp, you have access to over twenty thousand professional licensed therapists. It's not a crisis time; it's not self help, but it's professional therapy done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own professional licensed therapist. If you have ever searched for a counselor in your area, you know it can take weeks or even months just to get a phone call back. With BetterHelp you can start communicating as little as 48 hours. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches to so make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. Get 10% off um, at BetterHelp for your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash double-doing podcast. Again, you get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash double-doing podcast. And we want to thank BetterHelp for, for sponsoring today's episode. You deserve to prioritize your mental health this year. And welcome back to another episode of the Double dog Podcast. My name is Brendan Deak. Thank you so much for tuning in today, guys. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button. It would be greatly appreciated. You can also rate the podcast and review the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. It would also be greatly appreciated. I have a really, really cool episode for you today. I'm really excited for this one. I am joined by the writer for the new book that just launched, Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. He is a senior NFL writer for ESPN. Jason Reed is with me to discuss his new book. Jason, my man, how are we doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, thank you for jumping on. really appreciate it. I was telling you before the show, um, uh, you should be really proud of your work. This this book is making waves around the NFL world. Really excited to read it. I, full disclosure, I have not read the book yet. I've done a ton of research on it. It should be arriving over the next couple of days. I'm really excited to get my hands on on it. But um, Jason, let's start here. I think this is probably the perfect place to start. Why did you want to write this book? What became, I guess, the passion to write this kind of just start start from the beginning? What, uh, what was the process like at the beginning?
1: Yeah, you know, so back in 2019, the 2019-2020 uh, NFL season, the NFL was commemorating its 100th season. And, you know, it just seemed to me from having some conversations with some people that black quarterbacks as a group, starting black quarterbacks in the NFL seemed to be poised to do something really they had never done in the history of the game. And historically black quarterbacks were the most marginalized group in the game. You know, they were considered to be too stupid. Uh, they were considered to be lazy uh, that these were not guys who could lead teams. So I went to my editors at ESPN and I pitched basically following the, the star black quarterbacks around or the, the guys who I thought could become stars that season and really focusing on, what I thought could be the year of the quarterback in the NFL, and the fact that it could occur in the NFL's 100th season, I just thought that there was a lot of historical significance with that. Well, as it turned out, Lamar Jackson of the Baltimore Ravens was going into his first season as a week one starter, and he won the AP MVP award and became only the second quarterback other than Tom Brady to win the award unanimously. Patrick Mahomes, who had won the league MVP award the previous season, led Kansas City to its first Super Bowl championship in 50 years and won the game's MVP award. In doing so, he became, at the time, at 24 years old, the youngest player in NFL history to have a league MVP award, a Super Bowl trophy, and a Super Bowl MVP award. Kyler Murray, who was the number one overall pick in the draft going into that that season, he won the AP Rookie of the Year award. Dak Prescott Dallas had a fabulous season. Russell Wilson, who was then in Seattle, had another fabulous season, and Deshaun Watson also had a fabulous season. He was with the Houston Texans at the time, so it actually turned out to be, in fact, the year of the black quarterback in the NFL. Um, when I was going to the uh, to the airport in Miami after the Super Bowl, I had a literary agent reach out to me and tell me, "Hey, I think there's a book here." And then when I got to the airport. And I'm sitting waiting for my flight. Another liter- literary agent reached out to me and said, "Hey, I think there's a book here." So I took that as
0: a sign. <laughs> you know? uh, that's not a sign. I don't know what is.
1: Yeah, I took it as a sign. So, um, but you know, I didn't want to. I, I had done the Year of the Black Quarterback. I, I had already done that. I didn't want to do that again. So, um, I, I talked to uh, some my editors at ESPN, and um, and I and you know when there became this momentum for me to do this book, I decided what I really wanted to look at was, okay, how did the year of the black quarterback happen? How did this group that was once the most marginalized in the history of this sport, professional sports, most powerful in professional sports, most powerful and successful league, how did this rise occur? So I I went into it with the attitude that I wanted to act like I didn't know anything about the subject matter. And, um, 70 to 77 interviews and about 88,000 words later we have rise of the black quarterback what it means for america
0: okay so why don't i think the best way to start um i I want you to tell the story kind of off the top because when i was doing research on this this really caught my eye why don't you tell the story about marlon briscoe i think that's probably the beginning of it correct
1: yeah i mean marlon's a story i could talk about all day i could talk about his story you know sadly marlon recently left us uh you know he passed away and I'm so appreciative of the time Marlon gave me to, to, to really walk me through his story. So, you know, Marlon is a star quarterback at the University of uh, Nebraska at Omaha. Um, not, you know, not, not the one at Lincoln, you know, not, not, not the Huskers. This is, this is the one, in, uh, you know, at, in Omaha. He, um, you know, he's a star quarterback at a time when black players just are not, you know, they're not considered quarterbacks. And the understanding was is that if you were a good enough athlete to potentially be drafted back back in those days, either in the old AFL before it merged with the NFL or in the NFL, and you 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 were a black quarterback, you were going to have to change positions. So the the Broncos decided, okay, we like this Marlon Briscoe guy. We think he could be a really good cornerback. So that's what we're going to draft him as. And the Broncos drafted Marlon in the 14th round to play cornerback. But Marlon throws a wrench in the Broncos plans. He says, okay, I'll I'll come to you guys, but first I want to try out at quarterback. They looked in like he was crazy, but they're like, whatever. I mean, look, the process was completely rigged. Mm-hmm. By all accounts, though, you know, from researching the book and from talking to Marlon, Marlon performed well. They don't give him the job, obviously. They don't keep him on the roster as a quarterback, but he signs as a cornerback. Well, several several things happened. The main thing was the starter got hurt and the backups were ineffective. The team is off to a bad start. So they say, okay, screw it. We'll throw this black quarterback in there and, you know, we don't have anybody else. Well, to the surprise of management and the coaching staff, Marlon plays very well. He sets a Denver Broncos rookie record, 14 touchdown passes. He finishes high in the AFL rookie of the year voting, you know, and so moving forward, it looks like, wow, you know, it's 1968. And like the Broncos are going to have a black quarterback moving forward. This was unheard of. Mm-hmm. Marlon goes home to Nebraska to work on his degree, and he gets a call. He's like, hey, you know, a friend of his calls him and says, hey, you know, they're having tryout. They're having quarterback meetings here. And Marlon's like, well, that's impossible. I'm the quarterback. Gets on a plane, gets back to Denver, and finds out, yep, he's out. It was one thing for the Broncos to throw him in there when everybody else was hurt or ineffective and they were having a bad year. It was quite another to move forward with a black quarterback. Mm -hmm. So the Broncos released Marlon. Marlon winds up reinventing himself as a wide receiver, not just a wide receiver, but he becomes one of the best wide receivers in professional football. Uh, He has a great year with the Buffalo Bills. Then he winds up being traded to the Miami Dolphins. He wins a couple of Super Bowls on those Don Shula Super Bowl teams. Um, But he never gets a chance to play quarterback again. And that always left a hole in him. And I remember, you know, during one of the interviews I had with Marlon, Matter of fact, our first interview, we were doing it over lunch and, I, and he's telling me the story. Now, mind you, this is obviously decades and decades later. And I said to him as he was telling me the story, well, you know, how did you get over that? And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, you're assuming I have.
0: So this is that's just one. That's the one that caught my eye. That, that was kind of in the early stages. But I, I'm assuming my listeners are probably thinking this question here. Why did this happen? Why, why were black people not able to play the position when clearly they were talented enough? Marlon Briscoe was just, he was number one. He was he was case study number one where it could happen. And who was responsible for this?
1: Well, I mean, there's really no way to sugarcoat this. It was just straight racism. I mean, the view of black people in the last century, I mean, overwhelming view by many white people is that black people were just inherently inferior. They, were, they weren't smart enough. Uh, they, they, they weren't hard workers uh so you know that that was the view of black people by white people in society so then you look at professional sports i mean it's going to obviously carry over and the belief was of among team owners and head head coaches and executives who were all white that black men were simply incapable of handling the rigors of the position that black men could not read defenses because they weren't smart enough that black men wouldn't work hard enough to, to study playbooks and to, to really own the, you know, own the, the position and, and, and really learn the craft and, and probably, you know, most importantly that white players would not follow black men because black men are not leaders.
0: Yeah. That's what I, that was, that was the big thing I was wondering when I was doing this, was like, was it a leadership thing? Because, Back, it's not as much now. Of course, um, quarterbacks have to be a leader of men, but I feel like it was more of, of a thing maybe back in the eighties, seventies, nineties era where the quarterback had to be a leader of men. Was that kind of the stigma against well,
1: it? Well, yeah, it was. But you know, I I would I would disagree just in this but I think black. I, excuse me. I think quarterbacks still need to be leaders of men. One hundred
0: percent. One hundred percent. I think it was more of um, I guess over their head back in the day. Nowadays, you can kind of lead by example. I just, I I feel like it's more it was more talked about back in the day.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I mean for me, I think the thing about the position is, is that like, the quarterback has to be able to inspire. Once once that huddle is formed, you have to believe if if you if you're one of the the guys who is not the quarterback in the huddle, that this guy who is going to take the ball can get us to where we have to go. You know, and I think back to just an example of the top of my head. Um, that incredible buffalo bills uh kansas city chiefs playoff game last year i mean when that team when when the chiefs got into the huddle and they were down with only i forget how many seconds it was to go and had to go basically the length of the field they all believed that patrick mahomes could get them there like they had they had to believe that for it to happen and and so when you talk about you know leadership and you know being leader of men white team owners and i shouldn't even say white because there were there were no black team owners i mean there's still no are there still no black principal team owners in 2022 but team owners and t- team executives and coaches just felt that black men could not lead they were not people who would inspire confidence you know you have to for for your quarterback to really be able to thrive at the most important thing, winning. I mean, I'm not talking about you know a guy who throws you know 30 touchdown passes and you know and and can put up a bunch of yards. I mean, all that stuff is great, but really at the end of the day, what are quarterbacks measured on? Why is Tom Brady considered the greatest quarterback ever? Because he has those seven Super Bowl trophies, mm-hmm. and and you better believe that Tom Brady. There have been many occasions where the where his guys looked at looked at him and believed that you know. He's going to get it done, and so if 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 you're a team owner and you have this belief that white players, just as a practice, cannot follow black men because they know they know in their hearts that black men can't lead and succeed, yeah, why would you put a black man at that position? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the um, kind of when the doors kind of came down, the progress that was made. I think there were two names probably that that stick out the most, and that you probably focused on. In your book, Warren Moon and Doug Williams, why don't you explain kind of how those two guys kind of got this transition going?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I I mean, Doug Williams, you know, you can't tell the story about the black quarterbacks rise in the NFL without talking about Doug Williams. I mean, the first black quarterback drafted in the first round of the NFL draft when he was taken by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1978. Uh, The first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl and the game's MVP award, and when Doug Williams had this myth-busting performance for uh, now the Washington Commanders uh, back in 1987, he lights up the Denver Broncos. You know, 340 yards, uh, four touchdown passes. Washington crushes Denver. That was a seminal moment because up until that point, again, we're, now the league started in 1920. We're talking seven, We're talking 1987 now. The belief still was that a black man can, can can't can't guide a team through the playoffs and win the Super Bowl so when Doug Williams had that performance he planted a seed now listen it was one performance and if you're if you're a team owner or a coach or an executive you can you can kind of dismiss it still like okay it was great but maybe it's just a one-off maybe that never happens again but then what also happened in the late 80s early 90s Warren Moon comes down from Canada you know, Warren was not drafted coming out of the University of Washington, despite the fact that he helped Washington win a Rose Bowl and was the conference's co-player of the year. He goes to Canada, lights it up, has a great career there, is signed as a free agent by the Houston Oilers. And after a rough transition period from Canada to the United States, he gets rolling. He becomes a perennial pro bowler. He's the, he is today the only black quarterback enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And what happened with what happened in the league at that point is these team owners and coaches, are like, okay, the Doug Williams Super Bowl, Super Bowl performance may have been a one off, but this other guy is getting it done now with big time passing stats season after season. And so that really, those two really started the ball going, like, okay, well, maybe there is something here.
0: It's funny. It's funny because, um, my dad's been a diehard Washington fan for his entire life. So I've heard stories about Doug Williams. I grew up on stories about Doug Williams. Like he was one of the first guys my dad told me about. And then Warren moon, of course me being from Toronto, Ontario and growing up in Canada, those two guys were stories of my childhood. Right. And, and and it's really interesting to kind of see how it all ties together to your book. Okay. So after Doug and um, so after Doug and Warren, and I could be wrong here, but was Randall Cunningham kind of the next guy up and, I'm a, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles guy. I, I, I grew up watching tape of Randall Cunningham because my dad always told me stories about him too. if it, it, it was he because he played such a different style of quarterback. He was a running running around and he had the big arm was was he the guy that maybe the kids or or the the 2002 draft, which we'll talk about later where it was 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 he kind of like the guy that the kids were watching and saying, I want to be like him. And then did he kind of maybe kick the door open more for black quarterbacks to kind of start flushing into the NFL?
1: Yeah, Randall Cunningham, you know, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. Uh, You know, he's this, he's a quarterback at at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Uh, not a football power by any stretch. He is a quarterback there and a punter there. He gets drafted in the second round by Philadelphia. You know, you you didn't know what to make him, at least the league didn't. Well, when he finally gets a chance to start, he becomes the ultimate weapon. He outruns defensive backs. He throws the ball 70, 75 yards. He does things as a dual threat quarterback the NFL has just never seen before. You know, I opened the chapter on Randall talking to Carl Banks, the great outside linebacker from those Bill Parcells uh, championship teams. And on Monday Night Football once, and, you know, you can go look it up on YouTube, the Giants are playing the Eagles. and This is when the NFC East was you know, the monster in the NFL. Carl Banks hits Randall Cunningham. Should have been a sack. I mean, clearly should have been a sack. But Randall was so athletic in his prime that he puts his foot on that awful carpet that they used to have at Veterans Stadium, stabilizes himself, pops up and throws a touchdown pass. Carl Banks can't believe it. Any other quarterback would have been broken in two. But... That was Randall Cunningham. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we go from Doug Williams with the seminal performance in the Super Bowl. We move to Warren Moon, who's lighting it up week after week consistently as a passer. And then Randall Cunningham, the league had just never seen the likes of him. So, mm-hmm. you know, now we're into the, to the early 1990s, the mid-1990s, and it's becoming pretty clear that the league has been missing out on something for quite some time.
0: And then the 2002 draft happens. That's Dante Culpepper, Donovan McNabb. Am I missing one? Is there another one that was taken uh, as well?
1: 1999 Yeah, no, 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 yeah. no. Listen, man, the, the <laughs> years swirl in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, but it was Donovan McNabb, Dante Culpepper, and Achilles Smith. Yeah. Um, and that really, that draft mm-hmm. was where. Now, in my it's 1999. 1999. The NFL started in 1920. Okay, but that draft is really the tacit acknowledgement. By team owners and general managers and head coaches is that, okay, we have been missing out on something here mm-hmm. that that these guys are these guys can help us win games and more importantly help us make money okay so now and then so we move on to 2001, Michael Vick, something that' never happened in the history of the NFL, becomes the number one overall pick in the draft and mm-hmm. and really that draft when Michael Vick is taking number one overall is when we really enter the dawn of the era of the black quarterback. I mean, cause, because now the league is at a point where in, in years past, if you were a black quarterback in, in NFL draft rooms, which are called, you know, which the media calls war rooms um, there would be conversations, but
0: we're not going to take this guy. Cause he's a black quarterback. Yeah. Even, but, even in 2001, I bet you there were conversations like that
1: but after after Michael Vick is taken you see a situation occur where it's like okay you know now we're in this new generation and 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 I you know when I look at what happened in the midnight in the, in the late 1980s all the way to the early 2000s this is when we see this period where the NFL has
0: changed mm-hmm. but okay yes these guys are here Okay, so I want to I wanna zoom out a little bit and kind of ask a big picture question about this because, in the end, I feel like it comes around to getting these kids at a young age playing the position, right? Like, you don't just wake up at 18 years old and want to play quarterback. You need to have talent and you need to be able to play the position as a young kid. Was the big issue with this that kids that were six to 12 years old playing pop warner football? Or black kids not allowed to play the quarterback position at that young age, and then it just that's the reason it never happened. Because, look, again, like I said, quarterbacks is probably the hardest job in the world. You need to be able to play this. Most quarterbacks played this as a young, a very young age. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that's the root of the problem, or was the root of the problem?
1: Was a big part of it. And you know, at the youth football level, black kids were were, you know, encouraged to play other positions, or just outright moved. So the pipeline couldn't form because. There, there, there was no base for the pipeline. Uh, you, you have to have you have to have it starting at some point, and it just wasn't starting. Then you see the same thing continue on in high school and colleges, except I mean at, at historically black colleges and universities. Yeah, but but if you were a quarterback at an HBCU, you weren't going to play quarterback in the NFL for most of the previous century. Um, and that's why I really like to say we are now in the era of the black quarterback. And and what I mean by that is is it's not just that you know black quarterbacks you know, the, the, the power that they have, the contracts, you know, superstars in the NFL. But if you look at the college ranks, if you look at the traditional college powers, the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the USC's, all led by superstar black quarterbacks. You know, I started out as a high school sports reporter when I uh, broke into the uh, to the business. And I go to these elite quarterback camps you know, to write recruiting stories, you'd never see black faces. Mm-hmm. Now at these elite camps, you see black kids all over the place. When you talk about youth football, you know, at, at the eighth grade, you know, excuse me, at eight, eight, nine nine-year-olds, you would never see it there. Now you do. So the pipeline is now goes from youth football to high school to college to the pros to the point where, you know, it would not be shocking in the next five, eight, ten years to see 12 to 16 superstar black quarterbacks leading NFL teams. That's
0: so the way it should be. Um, you, you might have just answered my question a little bit here, but is is the, is the it where you want it to be? Is the, the rise of the black quarterback where it should be, or do you think there's still progress to be made?
1: Well, listen, I, I, I've been doing a lot of interviews around the book, and I try to make this clear that there has never been a better time to be an African-American man playing quarterback in the NFL. They have the biggest contracts. They are adored by fans. Their teams build around them. They have power that was once considered unfathomable, even 15, 20 years ago, to affect things that the league does. But progress is not perfection. You know, we we saw that just a couple weeks ago, Patrick Mahomes, a great quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, felt compelled to address some anonymous criticism of him and Lamar Jackson. And, you know, what he said is, look, black quarterbacks – We've had to fight to get here, and we, we've proven that we should have been here all along. But even today, some of the criticism about us sounds a little different than it does about some quarterbacks who don't look like us. So, yeah, have we made progress? Yes. Anyone who tries to argue otherwise is out of their mind, but progress is not perfection.
0: Yeah, like you, you think back to when Lamar Jackson was going through his draft process, and I, I can't remember the exact guy who said it, and I don't know if this was rooted through racism, but he did say that Lamar Jackson was not a quarterback. You should be playing wide receiver, and boy, was that guy wrong. And he was a scout, right? Like it's still, it's still prevalent to this day. So speaking of the, the quarterbacks in today's generation, Kyler Murray, Patrick, I think you have you have a whole pa- a whole chapter on Patrick Mahomes, correct, in the book. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, the black quarterbacks to start. are chapters yeah. with
1: all those guys.
0: Yeah. So, do you believe that they kind of have the torch now, and they have a lot of responsibility in kind of keeping this going?
1: You know. The Pioneers had a lot of responsibility on them. Uh, Marlon Briscoe, Doug Williams, uh, Warren Moon, uh, James Harris, uh, who was the first quarterback to start in a Pro Bowl and lead lead a team to a playoff victory. They did have a lot lot on their shoulders. But the great thing is, because of everything they had on their shoulders, these guys today can be primarily individuals. I mean, yes, they're going to be lumped in together as they were, uh, as Patrick Mahomes addressed those anonymous comments, but – by and large they are individuals they can stand as individuals and isn't that what we really all should be you know and all want that we're not all grouped in together just because of you know our our race or our our religious beliefs or you know uh ethnicity like we all should be judged as as individuals Mm -hmm. and these guys really don't have that burden on them for the most part
0: today Yeah, i'm glad you said that because like i i'm thinking back to when i was a kid Fall in love with the game of football like i fell in love with brian dawkins and donald McNabb. those are the two guys that got me in football i didn't give a crap of color their skin was and like that's because that was part of the reason i was raised like i was raised in a great household and and, and it bugs me that people still believe that there's no racism racism um so prevalent in america there's still households that treat that that treat their kids like there is like they they teach their kids to to not like the black kid on the football team and it's garbage that there's people out there that still think that that's not prevalent in today's society. Um, I, I think you're very qualified to speak about maybe other um, other racial issues in football, not just the quarterback position. We've seen with head co- with head coaching, and we've seen it with um, in other ways. But why don't you kind of just speak about your opinion on the way the coaching environment is in football, because? I think it's crazy. Like black people are, they are fundamentally building the game of football. 70. I don't know the exact side. It's probably about 70 to
1: 80%. It's about 59% right now.
0: Yeah. 59%. Okay. That's um, no, but like 70, how many, how many, it's
1: been as high as 70. It's been, yeah,
0: as how many like black people in the NFL, right? Did they dominate this league. I feel like players should be taught by people who have played this game and have loved this game. And it, it's crazy to me that still majority of the coaches are white. Um, Do you still share this belief and do you still think the NFL has a lot to do in this kind of, in this aspect?
1: Well, look, I mean, clearly the NFL knows that it has a problem, not just because Brian Flores, the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, is suing the league for, among other things, racial discrimination, alleging uh, that the league commits malfeasance in its hiring practices. The league has acknowledged that it needs to do better. I mean, when, you know, when your on-field workforce is you know between between 59 and 70 percent african-american it, it would stand a reason that you want those players to know that they will have opportunities moving forward in the future after their careers are done and you know the, the nfl claims to want a truly inclusive workforce you know in, you know off the field in in, in positions and management in coaching well if you want that you gotta you, you gotta make that happen and you know, it used to be that quarterback was the great frontier for black people in the NFL, that that was the position to say, well, you know, if black people could prove they could play quarterback, a lot would change. But there just aren't enough good black quarterbacks out there who can do it. Well, we know that was a lie. okay? And we also know that it's, it's a lie that there aren't qualified black coaches who can lead teams or there aren't more qualified black uh, executives who could become general managers and lead teams. But uh, this, is at the, this is at the team level. And it, it, the problem is with the owners. The owners have to want to make this happen because they think it's good business. And as long as they don't necessarily think they have to do it, they won't.
0: Okay, a couple more for you. I'll, again, you're, you're probably very qualified to speak about this. I want to talk about the Colin Kaepernick situation. Um, he basically gave his career to, to fight for social injustice, police brutality and whatnot. What do you what's what I guess what's your overall opinion on this and what happened? And because there's many people have many opinions on it. I see it as the NFL pushed him away and they did give him a job. To say that he wasn't one of the best, there's you can every team keeps two quarterbacks on their roster, right? So there's sixty-four automatic quarterback jobs in the league at all times. Some teams keep three, but we'll we'll keep it at sixty-four. To say that Conk Kaepernick wasn't one of the best 64 quarterbacks in the NFL is garbage. So what what's your um what, what's your opinion on kind of what happened to him?
1: Well, uh, we can have a discussion about discussion about how many teams Kaepernick could have started for. Mm-hmm. But if you want to have a discussion with me that he wasn't one of the best 64 quarterbacks in the league over the last you know he's been out of the league now going on five years, uh, you know during this period, then then there's nothing we can talk exactly. about. I mean. When you talk about the dearth of quarterback play in this league, he still has one of the highest touchdown interception ratios ever in the league. He helped the team reach the Super Bowl. He helped the team reach the playoffs in consecutive seasons. Like, again, I'm not saying he's Tom Brady. I'm not saying he's Patrick Mahomes, but there are guys on NFL rosters who do not deserved to be on nfl rosters this guy proved he he was more than good enough to be an nfl roster and his career was taken from him simply because the owners were angry that he that he in a peaceful protest in which he didn't violate any nfl rules at the time his peaceful protest you know brought a light put a light on systemic oppression and police brutality and angered white fans and i say angered white fans because we know this issue really comes down to based on polling we know it really breaks down along racial lines that generally speaking according to polling black people supported what he was doing and generally speaking according to polling white people didn't so you know you look at kaepernick and, and, and what he was willing to do i don't know how many among us would risk our careers to stand on principle but he did and the only reason he's not in the nfl is because owners were angry
0: yeah i 100 percent agree i was actually i was at the Buffalo Bills, the Bills versus Broncos. I think it might have been the week after Kaepernick did the protest. And I've never seen a more hostile crowd in my entire life. But I was at that
1: game. I was at that game as well. You were
0: there when LaShawn the McCoy took the knee. You were at that game? I
1: was, I was there as well. And I
0: was walking in the parking lot. And- I've never I've never experienced a more weird sporting event in my entire life.
1: Yeah, people were not happy. Fans were
0: mad at each other. Lashawn well, McCoy was taking the knee in the end zone. It was it was a very uncomfortable feeling and, and a very weird environment and it was one of those it's one i'll never forget i, I think it was the week after that's, that's very interesting that you were at that game too because I, I still have that that's what i i don't remember a single play from that game Neither i remember way. that feeling of, of, way. Of the way the hostility was at that stadium um okay last question for you jason thanks so much for doing this really appreciate it but i got one more question for you so your books rise of the black quarterback what it means for america without spoiling the entire book jason what does it mean for america
1: Oh, you can't you, no spoiler at all yeah. um, you know quarterback let's take it away from the football field for a second quarterback is a uniquely american leadership position if you if you were in a company and you're running a big project for your company you know you're leading a group of people on a on a project that the that the, the company really needs to go well you're the considered the quarterback of that project if you go in for a medical procedure and it's a You know, a serious procedure. There's a team of doctors working on you. Well, your lead doctor is your quarterback. When we think of quarterback in America, we think of the, the best. We think of the brightest. We think of the person who inspires everyone who they're around. We think of the person we look to to get the job done. And you know, in America, because the, 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 the NFL dominates American popular culture, it's, it, it, is, it, it dwarfs baseball, it dwarfs the NBA, it dwarfs hockey. When we think about America and sports, the first thing we think about is the NFL. So if black men, for most of NFL history, were considered simply incapable of playing the most important position, being the best leader, being the one that everyone rallied around, well, what does that say about American society overall? So what the rise of the black quarterback, what it means for America, what, what it what it means to me and what I hope people take away from him is that it shows that if the playing field becomes somewhat level, not completely level, but just somewhat level, and people are given opportunities to compete as individuals and to put their work ethic and their intelligence and their abilities on the line, that any of any of us can rise up and contribute to the fabric of the greatest country the world has ever known.
0: Jason Reed of ESPN, the, new, the author of the new book, Rides of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. Jason, thanks so much for doing this again. Why don't you plug in your social media and where people can buy this book?
1: Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Um, people can get me at jreed@espn They can read my work on ESPN.com and Anscape.com. Uh, they can buy the book wherever it's sold, uh, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, target.com, amazon.com. And also uh, I believe in support my local bookstores. So support your local bookstores as well.
0: Jason, thanks again, man. Let's talk soon.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.